The scripture reading today is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's, well, there you go. We have some sound. Let's uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, we thank you for our worship this morning that has steadily reminded us that no one is good enough to save themselves, and reminded us of your faithful promise that when we endure trials, that they will not ultimately overtake us. And you've reminded us that we struggle with rest. So we pray now that as we think about this prayer of Jesus, this interaction with him and his disciples, that we would understand something of its, of its intention, of its meaning. We would understand how we might pull it toward our lives, our community, how Scott and Marie and Ezra and Honor might pull it toward their lives as they move into this community as leaders. So be with us and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is a real honor to be here. I love Liberty and uh, had a wonderful friendship with Jeff when he was here and have been here and preached a number of times, and it's wonderful to be here with you today. And it's exciting to be here today because Scott and Anne-Marie are longtime friends of ours. Um, just a little bit of background maybe that might be of somewhat some, some, some kind of an interest. So I met Scott when I hired Scott to work with me at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. So we go way back into those days of my life, and it was an honor and a great uh, great honor to work with him and a privilege to get to know he and his family that sort of expanded during the time there. Honor came during that little season of life, and we knew Ezra and Anne-Marie, and I've enjoyed many meals at Scott's table and uh, enjoyed many conversations with his family and Anne-Marie and her piercing conversations. She is an inquirer. 
she will ask you questions too. So uh, it's really exciting for us to have the Crosby family as a whole here in Philadelphia. And I think it will be a real honor for you as Liberty Church to get to know them and their friendship as I have known them. So I want to look at a passage this morning, if I try not to get emotional here. I want to look at a passage that takes us into a very sober moment of Jesus' life. Um, it's a moment as the chapter pages are turning. It's turning from this season of living life, living with his disciples, teaching them about the coming of the kingdom, doing miracles, doing wonderful things that sort of give us little bitty foretastes of God's future, life as it ought to be. And Jesus, since chapter 8, has been talking about, in, in Mark's gospel, he's been talking about his coming death. And the disciples have not understood it. And now Jesus is moving into that chapter, into that moment of suffering unto death itself. And he prepares for it, to pray. And he wants to prepare his disciples for that moment as well uh, and urges them to similarly wait up and keep watch and pray. Now, it bears mentioning this isn't the ordinary way in which any of us typically think about preparing for something momentous like this. When I was thinking about this passage the last couple of weeks, I thought about um, Shakespeare's Henry V play, or if you've seen the movie. Um, And you know that great, fantastic St. Crispin's Day speech, right, where there's this rousing moment of rousing the troops to courage in the face of what is almost certainly going to be devastating death. But you don't think about sort of retreating, praying, you rouse people with with some stirring speech. You know, Elizabeth, in her very wonderful worship leading this morning, mentioned Margaret Thatcher, mentioned the Iron Lady. Now, just for a brief moment, imagine the Iron Lady. Is this how she would rouse the troops to some piece of legislation? Is this how she would move some great act through? Not likely. There is tremendous weakness in Jesus at this moment. And the way in particular that weakness surfaces as he leads his own life into this next chapter and as he leads leads his disciples into this chapter, there's a tremendous weakness. But there's also a strength that is so absolutely essential to the work that Jesus is about to do. And if you and I are going to follow Jesus as followers in the church, if we're going to align our lives with him, we need to understand something of that weakness and something of that strength. And if Scott and family are going to pastor this congregation toward the same thing, toward the goal of the kingdom of God, you need to understand something of that weakness and something of that strength. So I want to look at this text with you this morning, if I may. And there's a lot here. But I'd like to focus on three things in particular. First, let's think about the grief of Jesus. And then let's think about the sleep of the disciples and then the cross of leadership. Now, first, the grief, the grief of Jesus. So I've mentioned that since chapter 8, Jesus, uh, chapter 8 in Mark really is a decisive turn in his telling of Jesus' life story. And it's that moment when Jesus, you probably remember it if you've read through Mark any time in your lifetime, you'll remember that there's that moment where Jesus asks the disciples the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you're the Christ. 
And then there's that moment when almost immediately after, Jesus moves into this long conversation about his coming suffering. That's what his life is going to sort of move toward. He is Messiah. He is the Christ. But the Son of Man must suffer, must die, and rise again. And Peter says, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. Everybody knows that Messiahs don't die unless they're failed Messiahs. And Jesus rebukes him, and then he begins to talk about how the cross is going to characterize his life, but guess what? It's also going to characterize your life as my follower. So here we are at that moment that his life has been moving toward his death. Now, if the only thing you knew about Jesus' life here was this, this statement about his coming death, you and I would typically think something like this. Well, so what? Why would you think that? Think about it for a moment. You've been born into this life. Have you seen people die? Do you know the story of death in your own life and people around you and people that you love? You have seen death happen over and over and over and over again. And so you would think, well, what's the big deal? Of course your life is going to end in death. Of course you're moving toward death. Jesus says his life is moving toward death. And if that's all that you knew about him, you'd say big deal. But when you think back to the story of Jesus' life, the story that Mark has been telling about Jesus' life, you recognize it actually is a tremendous deal. And it's tremendously out of the ordinary for someone like Jesus to die. Why is that? Well, think about it. At Jesus' baptism, for example, Jesus steps up to the waters of John's baptism, and he says, baptize me. And John is hesitant to baptize him, but he baptizes him nonetheless, and, and he's hesitant because he's thinking, you're the son of the living God. You're holy, you're righteous, you live with relationship to God, you have unity with God, you don't need to repent of anything. But Jesus says, baptize me. And then there's that moment of tremendous confession of the Father speaking from heaven. This is my Son, and with him I'm well pleased. And then there's the moment of the Spirit descending on Jesus. So you've got Father, Son, and Spirit here in this moment of redemptive identification with the brokenness of humanity. Not a brokenness that's their own, but a brokenness that belongs to us, to our human life to the death that belongs to, to us. Father, Son, and Spirit affirming. Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted by the devil. Think about that for just a moment. When you read the story of Jesus' temptation, the thing that stands out is this, is that in a moment of tremendous weakness, he's hungry. The devil comes to him and he offers him alternate ways of seeking God's kingdom, of bringing about some kind of kingdom goodness. And Jesus does this over and over again. He leans more and more deeply into the things that God has said, into the things that God has promised, and into the things that he said. He aligns himself over and over again with his desire that God's kingdom would come, with his desire that God's kingdom would come in the way in which God has designed his kingdom to come. 
And so he consistently says no to the temptation. I can't say that of myself. Can you say that of yourselves? Can you look at your life and say, I have consistently lived life listening to God's voice, honoring God's voice in my life, turning down all the alternate voices in my life and around my life. No, you can't say that, and I can't say that. So here's the thing about the death of Jesus. It doesn't fit his life. It fits my life. It fits your life, but it doesn't fit his life. Look at the, look at the prayer here for just a moment. Mark says that he's troubled. Jesus falls on the ground. He says, my soul is exceeding, exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. And then there's the prayer itself. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Several remarkable things surface in that little tiny moment. On the first hand, I think about this. I think Jesus feels conflicted. He feels conflicted. Now, that's strange because I think of Jesus and his godness and his humanity as one, the son of God who's following God with fidelity. I think of that, well, that's easy for Jesus. You know, he just kind of cruises through life as God. He just has it made. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't face the kinds of tempting feelings that we face. But this particular moment tells us that just isn't the case. That in his humanity, God has chosen to cloak himself in human flesh, to become one of us in our world. And as such, he was capable of conflict inside of himself. Jesus feels a bit of angst as he moves toward this final chapter of his life. But another thing that shows up here that's really brilliant is that Jesus bends his desires beneath God's desires. Think about us for a moment. Most of us in our particular moment in history, we tend to think you are what you feel, right? You are your desires. And so much of our lives is sort of given to this self-actualization of our desires, of sort of living into our desires, of finding fulfillment in ourselves, of understanding ourselves. And if you don't get to express your desires, guess what? You're repressed. You're oppressed. You're not yourself. But what Jesus shows us in his own humanity is this, is that to be most fully human is to be most aligned with God. And so it is to, in those moments of conflict, to subordinate your desires to this particular greater desire for God and for his kingdom to come. And that's exactly what Jesus does here, and it's remarkable. And then in the context of this, feeling this conflict of bringing his desires beneath the desires of God, he cries out to God, Abba, Abba, Father. This is the most intimate language that a child would use in reference to their daddy. This isn't this sort of, Lord, thou art holy and mighty, I submit to your will. This is, Daddy, I'm conflicted. There's this tremendous intimacy in the prayer of Jesus. Now, think about your own life with God. When I think about my life with God, there are times when I, I resonate with intimacy with God and I feel the sense of his nearness. I feel that sense of intimacy of crying out, Abba, Father. 
But you know what? There are a whole lot of times in between when I feel like God's somewhere out there, that he's oblivious to my life, that he's oblivious to the struggles of my life. Jesus never, ever felt that way. He only knew intimacy with the Father. And so even in this moment of conflict, when you and I would most likely say, God, where are you? Jesus cries out to God, Abba, Father, can this cup pass from me? Think about the conflict itself for just a moment. He prays that this cup might pass from him. From him. It's, it's most likely an echo that reaches back into the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 25. When God is speaking to Israel and reminding them and giving them a sense of comfort that judgment will come to the enemies of God. And the judgment will look like this. God's enemies will drink the cup of the wrath of God. Now, Jesus almost certainly, when he says, if this cup can pass from me, he's referencing that cup, the cup of the wrath of God. Now, wrath is a strange concept for us to embody or to embrace, rather, because particularly when we think about God, right? Why? Because we actually think about our wrath. And we can't imagine our wrathfulness or the wrathfulness that we've experienced from someone else around our lives as being good in any sense at all. We attribute to God the way we do things. But wrath in the context of the Bible isn't really about God's excessive, explosive anger. It's about his commitment to justice. And so what God is promising Israel is this, is that his kingdom will come. Why? Because he will do justice on the earth. He will bring about justice in the earth. And one of the things that, that the only way you get into a space of justice is how, if injustice is dealt with. And so this notion of drinking the enemies of God, drinking the cup of the wrath of God, it's basically saying, look, we're going to get rid of the enemies of God. We're going to judge the enemies of God. Anyone living away from the Lord will be judged, and justice will reign. But here's the absolute remarkable thing about this particular passage. Jesus says that cup is coming his way. In other words, this is a cup that Jeremiah speaks of as going to the enemies of God. But Jesus says it's coming to me. Can it pass from me? When you think about that, you begin to recognize that Jesus' death was no ordinary death at all. It's not just that he didn't deserve death or that it didn't fit his life because he lived with intimacy with God. It's that Jesus here is saying that his death becomes a substitute of sorts, that, in other words, it displaces judgment from the lives of the enemies of God to God himself. That is a beautiful and a remarkable concept. Jesus' grief is that he will experience some kind of abandonment and forsakenness by the Father. And that's almost an unthinkable thing. It's almost unimaginable that there would be some kind of fissure in the Trinity itself. That is weird. And it was hard for Jesus to even wrap his own mind around. 
And yet it is exactly what he committed to. Jesus orders all the desires of his heart, of his flesh, of his body toward the greater desire for the kingdom of God to come. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The author of Hebrews says he despised its shame, the shame that in the appearance of the Roman world would spell what? The defeat of another failed Messiah. The shame that in the Jewish world would speak back into Deuteronomy itself, where God says anyone that hangs on a tree is cursed of God. Jesus willingly undergoes the curse. He brings all of his wants under the greater want of the kingdom. God, come put life right. Nevertheless, your will, not my will. The grief of Jesus. Now think about the sleeping disciples. This is the fun part. Because it's the part that we can actually identify with, I think, the most. Right? We don't really identify well with Jesus saying these bold things. Nevertheless, your will, not my will. Nevertheless, the cross. Nevertheless, yes, the cup of the wrath of God. Nevertheless, we identify with sleeping disciples, and particularly in the context of prayer. Right? I was speaking with someone this week, and they made the comment of a time when they were in a prayer group of people, and they fell asleep in the middle of this prayer that someone else was praying, and they just slept. And then they sort of woke up before that person ended the prayer. So it was very helpful because eyes are closed, right? Heads are bowed. No one would know. Right? We, we get sleepiness. So think about what's happening here. Jesus withdraws into this moment of prayer to lay his heart out before the Father, Abba. He pulls Peter, James, and John a little bit more closely so that they have greater proximity to all this prayer that he's doing. He wants them, perhaps, in an emotional sense, to sort of to be near him, to stand with him in this hour. They don't. They sleep. But there's also a sense in which Jesus almost certainly is calling them forward to be near him in this moment so that they themselves will also prepare for their moment. Will they prepare for their moment? They need prayer. They need communion with God. They need his help, his sustaining them, right, through their own hour of temptation. Jesus, well, let me say this. When you follow the story of the disciples' lives through the Gospel of Mark in particular, the thing that you notice about them over and over and over again is not their brilliance. It's not that they really understand anything that Jesus is teaching them in public or in private. Because what happens over and over again is they're constantly befuddled by Jesus. They're constantly encountering, you know, Peter rebuked Jesus. Lord, you got it wrong. Then they're on the lake, right? And they've seen, they've, or they, they're in moments where, where Jesus is feeding crowds. They've done miracles. They've, they've even done miracles themselves. And Jesus says, feed the crowds, the hungry crowds. Lord, well, we don't have enough food. And that happens twice. And you think, don't you get it? Don't you, can't you sort of learn and sort of you go from point A to point B, Peter? I don't get this. Mark tells a story of the disciples that if you were looking for a leader, you would think, who in the world would choose them? They have the benefit of such intimacy with Jesus. Private dialogues, private conversations with him. You know, deeper explanations of what all these things mean. But they just 
keep missing him. They keep messing up. They, they just live away from him. They don't get him. And yet here we are right now in another one of those moments, right? They're asleep. They're struggling to wait with Jesus. Jesus says the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Now, what does he mean by that? You know, sometimes you read this and you think, well, at least they might have had good intentions. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there's a little bit of truth to that. But, you know, seriously, when you think about your lives as Christians, does your willing spirit get you very far? Chances are not. I think Jesus actually here is saying something like this. Your flesh is weak, but the Holy Spirit is willing. What do we know about God? God isn't up in his heaven sort of holding you at arm's length saying, don't come any closer. Or he's not saying, you know, plead your case with me and make a good case and maybe I'll answer your prayer yes. God is posturing himself toward his broken world. And over and over again in that posture, he's saying, I am willing to give you the kingdom. I am willing to give you the kingdom. I am willing to stand with you in your hour. I'm willing to walk with you through the waters of your suffering. I'm willing to bring my kingdom. So I think what Jesus is reminding the disciples of here is really the intentions of God, the willingness of God, his availability to them. You don't have to cajole him into doing something. He's here. He's for you. He's with you. Stay awake. Pray. Watch. It's a reference to the Spirit of God. God is willing to carry you through your temptations through all the situations that will run through your life. But here's our problem. We struggle to turn toward Abba. We turn to so many other voices. We turn to so many other dreams, so many other desires, so many other ideas of what we want our lives to be like, rather than to him. We don't let him order our lives. As we were singing some of these songs, I was reading, for example, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Foes may hate, friends disown me, show thy face, and all is bright. Do you really believe that? Or think about the other song that we read or that we sang from Isaiah 43, that when we walk through the waters or pass through the waters, I will be with you. The waves will not overcome you. You know how we typically read that, song, that, that prayer of Isaiah? We look at that through the American dream. And almost certainly, when, you, when I hear that song, I get a little bit of goosebumps because it's a beautiful song. And Katie, you did a wonderful job. It's a lovely song, but I almost always want that song to mean that God won't actually lead me through suffering. But that can't be what God means. It means that he'll pass through those waters with you. It means that one day his kingdom will come and you'll be part of those waters. You'll be part of that kingdom of God. But do you really, do you really know what it means to turn to Abba and entrust your life to him? That's what Jesus was asking of the disciples. But they look like blabbering idiots. In verse 40, Jesus said, or he learned just simply this, they had no idea what to answer Jesus. 
they're clueless as to what to say again. Have you ever felt that in your own struggle with temptation, with sin, with life? That you're back again in God's presence and you just don't know what to say. Here's the beautiful thing. The Spirit is willing and Jesus is willing. And what this text particularly shows us is that Jesus isn't waiting for the disciples to understand him to move into this next chapter of his life. He's not waiting for them to get their lives together, to finally pray, to finally have the right words, to finally have all the right understanding. He's willing just as a matter of his own faithfulness to what God wants. And out of his love for you who don't know what God wants, to do everything necessary to get us there. And there's a bit of irony in it, too, because the disciples are resting. They're able to sleep in this moment of Jesus' trial and even of their own trial. But think about it. What does Jesus want to give the disciples? We spoke of this in our confession of sin this morning. He wants to give them rest. And the only way their restfulness will actually be secured is through his restlessness. It's through his taking this cup, the grief of Jesus, the sleep of the disciples. Now, finally, think about the cross of leadership. This is a little bit hidden in the text, I think. But if you stop and you think about it, Mark wasn't there. He wasn't one of the disciples, right? He wasn't in that inner circle. But Mark is telling us this story. He's telling the church this story. Something I think you learn from this is that Mark is able to tell the story because apparently the disciples talked about this story. Do you usually tell things that are sort of negative about yourself? The disciples have finally reached a point in their own lives where they've understood the end of God, his kingdom come. And they've understood the means of God, the cross of Christ, but also the way the cross works in their own lives. So they're able in some amazing way to humble themselves and to tell stories about where they blew it and where they got it wrong and how they just look so stupid, blabbering nothing. They're able to be vulnerable and honest. Mark is telling these stories to the church because the disciples told these stories to the church. And we need to remember these stories. They understood the ends and the means of God. Listen to something that N.T. Wright says about this notion. He writes this. He says, there's a, sense in which the, there's a sense in which the gospel, because Jesus died, we do not. His unique death saves us from what would otherwise be ours. But there's another sense repeated again and again in the rest of the New Testament that because Jesus died, we must die too. We must pick up our cross, bearing public shame, as well as the prospect of pain and suffering, and follow him. And that is not only the route by which we must travel for our own sakes, but it is the path we tread through which Jesus' victory is made real again and again in our world. One of the most powerful ways in which the gospel is understood is through Christians who are humble and repent. Through Christians who understand the love of God and are able to be honest about all the ways in which we sleep. It's a beautiful thing to think about. God calls us to bear our cross, 
I was speaking recently with a friend who had recently come through a series of AA meetings, and she said the most startling thing to me about having to go through AA meetings. She said, it was an amazing and beautiful experience. And I'm thinking, really? And she says, here's why. She said, it's exactly what the church ought to be like. That's not the metaphor I want to think about when I think about the church. I want to think about, you know, singing and fellowship and communion and all these other wonderful things that we do. But here's what she went on to say. She said it was what the church ought to be like. And I said, what do you mean? Explain that a little bit further. And she said, because every single person in that room is there. Why? Because they've blown it. And they finally reached a point in their lives where there's no pretension. And so here you are in a room, a collectivity of people, some who are very much like you in your same station of life, some people that may be younger than you, some that are older, some that are poor, some that are wealthy, some that are educated, and some that haven't even passed high school. And everyone in the room is leveled because of their failure. And they're not putting on a show And they're not trying to pretend that they haven't failed. But they're able with tremendous vulnerability to be there. The church is a community like that. It is a community of people that are brought low by the humble acknowledgement that we sleep. We don't stand with God. We sleep in so many different ways. But we say that and we confess that in the context of amazing hope. Because Jesus, our Savior, didn't sleep. Because he was restless. Because he suffered. Because he died. Because he rose out of that death. And so we can rest in him. And part of that rest means this. That we take up our cross and we follow him even into the shame of our own confessions of sin. Our own acknowledgement of weakness. So how do we pull some of this toward this particular service today? And I'd like, just as we close, to address the whole Crosby family. It's a charge to you, Scott, but it's really a charge to you, Emory, and to you, Ezra, and to honor, that you might think about your calling as a pastoral family in this church differently. You see, for all of the excitement and the the thankfulness, the, the festivity of a reception and everything else that's about this day, Here are some things that I think you need to remember. Remember Jesus. Remember his suffering, his dying, and his rising. Because that event, or those events in the life of Jesus, are the centerpiece of everything that you will do pastorally. Everything that you will say, everything that you will preach, every conversation over dinner, or around coffee, or at a beer, or whatever... Everything you have to say will hinge on your understanding of the work of Jesus Christ as a source of your peace. But also, let Jesus' embrace of the will of God, that his kingdom would come, let his embrace shape your embrace. Depend on his love for you. Bend your desires to his desires very practical way you could do that. Moving is hard. It always rips us from one context and puts us into another. And whenever that happens to our lives, it's happened in my life quite a bit. 
Whenever that happens, there's a pain of leaving friends that you've grown to love and leaving a place that you've grown to love and leaving a city that's quite remarkable in so many ways. Not to mention a city loaded with great food. Subordinate your desires, your pain, your joys to the greater joy that God's kingdom would come. Live through the embrace of Jesus Christ as you take up this move, as you make new friends, as you learn how to pastor this community of faith. Let Jesus' love for you shape everything that you do in your own life. Take up your cross, rest in him as your hope and your peace. But also, as we just said, cross-bearing for leaders and for non-leaders alike, for everyone inside of the body of Christ, involves a willingness to embrace the shame of the cross, which always means that we learn to live without pretension. The danger of leadership in the church is that as you sort of ascend, we so often think it's difficult for us to be vulnerable. And there are ways in which that vulnerability changes, but it is so absolutely important that you as a family would live out this gospel in the midst of this community with the kind of proximity that allows people to not just hear you say things, but actually enables the body of Christ to see the gospel, God himself, at work in your life. And almost always, that will include you're not just speaking it right, but you're somehow repenting before the people of God. Living with vulnerability, as Peter and James and John undoubtedly did in the early days of the church, They despised the shame of the cross, and for them, part of that meant not only celebrating Jesus' death as the death that takes their place in death, that actually is the victory of God, but because of that, being able to be weak in front of the family of God. Live with this kind of proximity before the body of Christ that we might flourish in God's kingdom coming. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we acknowledge that it is really crazy to think about loving you this way. That so many things in our lives, when we reach those points of conflict, where our desires don't seem to line up with the things you desire, our inclination, our natural inclination, of course it is, is to say, please let this cup pass from me. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who could voice the conflict, but who could end the sentence very differently. Who would say, not my will, but your will. We thank you for him. We thank you for love like that, that remakes our lives, that puts our lives back together and brings forth your kingdom personally, and in the world itself. So we pray for Scott and Anne-Marie and for Ezra and for Honor in all the ways appropriate to them that they would over and over again be able to seek your kingdom and be able to submit themselves wanting and longing most of all that your will would be done. 
So, God, strengthen them and strengthen this fellowship of the body of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.